0: Hello and welcome to Just a Guy and his journey back to God. So today we're in Matthew 18 and before we go there, let's go to God in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for all that you are. For loving us and taking time to care about us. You're the creator of all things, Lord, and yet you care about me. So today, Lord, as we read and we... study about your your kingdom. I just pray that you would be the one that we focus on that it would be your you holy spirit who guides us and provides the wisdom that there'd be nothing from me but merely but only wisdom and insights from you. I lift up this time and thank you in Jesus name. Amen. So chapter 18 is about the kingdom of heaven. And there's a whole lot of pieces into it in it. But one of the things that I'm going to read, as uh, will also be some comments and some thoughts from A.W. Tozer. So let's go ahead and jump into verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So children were not highly regarded. They were loved, but they were really, for the most part, they were looked upon as a cost, as a debit, not a credit. And so they, they they required food and care until they could work. And so children... In societies, and they also had high mortality rates. So the parents and the families and people didn't get to know them super well because, unfortunately, the mortality rates were pretty high. So Jesus is saying, in talking about one of the lower elements in a society, and that's kids, and he's saying these are the greatest and the highest and greatest in heaven because of their their innocence. Verse 6 if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed, or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen then to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This isn't the only time Jesus says this. It's recounted, in earlier chapters. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree that anything they ask about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my, father, my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So I think this is really interesting because the chapter starts out with basically pride because the, the disciples were potentially kind of arguing amongst themselves about who is gonna be the greatest in heaven. Was it Peter? Was it, was it uh, John? You know, who was it? And so they come to him and he says, he says be like these children. Which are low. So, boom, pride is being attacked. And then, anyone who goes and makes one of these children or my new converts or my children of God stumble, they're in trouble. And they're thinking, uh oh. Then he talks about, you know what? This is how you deal with sin in the church. You bet you should be better off. You'd, you're better off worrying about the one who's wandered than the the 99 who haven't. So go out and look for that one who's wandered, i.e. sinning, and is on the wrong path, and work to bring them back. And now how do you deal with that person? In chapter, in verse 15, where if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. This doesn't make a big deal out of it. Don't embarrass them. Go with them in love, like a, a shepherd finding his lost sheep and look at them and have the, the same intensity of, and passion for saving that sheep as you do for that person. And then it establishes, hey, if you can't, you know, then you bring two other, three other people in. And then, then if they still don't, because even though you're doing it out of concern and love and, and passion for them, now escalate it to the church and if they still won't do it. But all of that is an activity of love and you should be praying for them, that you're binding whatever is causing them to sin. And if you bind it on earth, it'll be bound on, in heaven. And you should be praying for lo- the loosing of love and peace and joy and salvation for that, f- that fellow child who has wandered away. Then he talks about now, if you guys don't take the right approach about this brother or sister who's sinned, at least this is my interpretation... You're more like the the servant who was forgiven so much and then didn't forgive at all. So it's all about our approach and our heart on how we approach someone who's who's slipped away and is now sinning. Do we go and make a big deal of it? Do we attack them and say, pay it back, stop sinning? Or do we approach them with reverence? Because you know what? I've been there. I've had so much that I've done wrong, so many sins that I've done. And let me, let me pray with you and help you get back to where you need to be with God. I think it's very interesting, the progression throughout this, this chapter. And you then have, I've pulled up some A.W. Tozer to read, and he's, he focuses on chapter or verse six, where it says, um, if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea the new testament warns that those who incite others to evil acts will themselves be brought to stern justice the devil tempted christ but could not persuade him to do wrong christ could not be stirred to evil because there is no evil in him satan's efforts efforts were wasted and no harm was done nevertheless he must yet face the terror of god's judgment for his unholy attempt Whoever puts a stumbling block in the path of the Christian will receive just punishment, whether or not he succeeds in causing him to to fall. Before the pool can be muddied, the muck must indeed be at the bottom, but the hot anger of God will move against those who delight to stir it up. So I think that's very apropos for the ones who are causing others to stumble. But I think then Tozer goes on in his book, called, The Attributes of God, Version 1, where he talks about more about the sinner being converted, and I think it's just an incredible piece, so let me read it to you real quick. We have a few minutes. A soundly converted sinner who, is a, who has a conscious transplantation of the divine nature into his heart by faith in Jesus Christ is likely to be explosively happy. He says with Jacob, this is the gate of heaven. God is in this place, and I did not know it. God's conscious presence has been restored to him. What makes heaven heaven? The unhindered, unsullied presence of God. What makes hell hell? The absence of a conscious of the presence of God. The absence of a consciousness of the presence of God. So God is everywhere. Just as when Jacob had his eyes open, he saw the, the angels moving up and down from earth to heaven. And he's like, wow, this is the gate to heaven, the gate of heaven. God is in this place and I didn't know it. That unconsciousness of God is hell. But the but heaven is really knowing God and seeing him everywhere. That's the difference between a prayer meeting and a dance hall. The omnipresent God fills heaven and earth contains heaven and earth and is this, and is present everywhere but in the prayer meeting some little old lady kneels and says oh jesus where two or three are gathered thou art in the midst god is there in the dance hall they'd be embarrassed if the presence of god were to be in the midst to be manifest that's why conversions uh, we pick them out of their shell by, and try rubbing their nose in red letter text to make them think they're co- converted They've not had an implantation of the divine life. There's no similarity and therefore God and man do not meet in the bush. But wherever God and man meet, there's the joyous rebound of the human spirit. Similarity is restored and instead of God being a million light years away, the man can hardly believe his own heart when he cries, Oh God is in this place and I didn't know it. So Tozer is again picking out on the church that yeah there's a lot of conversions that aren't what they need to be. He's very very conservative and very much in his his thoughts that you know he truly thinks if a if your eye causes you to stumble to pluck it out but the reality is is he also truly understands that when there's a conversion, your eyes are opened, you understand that God is there he's the similarity between us, the, the likeness of our spirit, because we're made in God's image who is spirit, which means we're spirit. We just have a human body. That similarity is is shared again. It's opened up. Our eyes understand it. And we can say, oh, God is in this place, and I did not know it. So that's actually the reflection of my journey, is to truly have my eyes open, my heart and my spirit joined with God's so that I can say, God is in this place and I see him everywhere. And with that, let's just go back to God in prayer. Father, th- thank you for this time and thank you for all that you've done for us and helping us to understand a little bit more about you. I pray that our spirits would be completely filled by you and that we would be joined by by yours or to yours. I pray most of all, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be open with the joyous understanding that you surround us, you love us, you're for us, and therefore nothing can be against us. That we would see things on the spiritual level, not just the earthly. And that our hearts would be be made gentle, that our words would demonstrate your love. I just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining me at Just a Guy and His Journey Back to God. I hope you have a great day.